This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Psalm 23, I'll be reading verses 5 and 6. In fact, let me just back up. There's only six verses. Let's read the entire psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God. May be blessed by hearing the reading of it this morning. You may be seated. Psalm 23 is again, as we've stated earlier, one of the most popular sections of scripture, most recited and printed on plaques and t-shirts and books and uh, throughout the years. It's often read at funerals, and many think that the message of Psalm 23 is about death, but it is not about death. In fact, the primary focus is exactly the opposite. This is a song of life. It is a psalm of joy, a short psalm chronicling the feelings and thoughts of David as he wrote this under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. During a time when David, the king, before he was king, faced a very dark time in his life. It is a parallel psalm to Psalm 16. So you could read Psalm 16 and Psalm 23, and they speak of the very similar things. Psalm 16 speaks of the protection of God who loves and knows and sees. And that is not a minuscule thing in a world where people feel like they don't matter and that no one understands and no one cares. We are reminded that we serve a God who loves and knows and sees. In verse 2, we see God in, chapter, in Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd providing for the physical needs of his sheep. In verse 3, David declares God's goodness in providing for his spiritual needs. And in verse 4, we see the mental and emotional needs covered. And now in verse 5 and 6, we see the shepherd referenced as the host. So the shepherd is my host is the first focus here. If you can picture a great banquet hall with a table set ready for a great meal, waiting for the honored guests to arrive, that's the imagery you have here. And now if you can picture that banquet table, if not in a hall, picture it in the middle of a battlefield. In the middle of a battlefield with the enemy vanquished and laying all around defeated, you have this table in the midst of a battlefield set up for honored guests. And the Lord is king, the Lord who is victor, the Lord who is sovereign over all, has defeated sin, death, and evil, and now it's time to eat. See, Baptists didn't come up with that. It's time to celebrate with a meal, and the shepherd who is now the host is providing the meal. He's providing the feast. This blessed gathering has a seat reserved for everyone, everyone who knows the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to let that image resonate just a bit. There is a a table set up with a seat for every child of God. It's an amazing image if you think about it. 
David the psalmist writes this, but he, he, so therefore he is stating that he has a seat reserved for him at the table. But for those that are listening today, those that are online, those that are in the room who are also Christians, who are children of God, who are following God, who have surrendered their lives to him, there too is a seat for you. There's a seat for me. And everybody who has a seat at the table that the Father has set awaiting us, every one of us are undeserved. We don't deserve a seat at the table. But he has set a place for us. Now don't rush too quickly over this passage and miss this amazing reality that is the God of the universe, the creator of all, the one who existed before anything else existed that we could ever even fathom, the Lord who spoke every single created thing, created item into existence, the Holy One, the perfect one, the one who never is in need, who never changes his mind, who really never cannot nor will tolerate sin, will not tolerate sin, sets a table for a feast and ensures that you and I have a seat. I read this and have read Psalm 23 many, many times, and I've read them at funerals, and I've read them at other times, and just in daily devotionals, and you kind of get to this point of this meal, and this, this meal brings to mind other imagery of, of meals. There's a meal in the book of Revelation that's referenced there, and there are meals at other times, and, but I think about David's life, and I think of an event that took place in David's life years uh, during his time as king likely after this was written. And it is a, a moment in his life that took place after Saul had been killed. Saul was the king that the Israelites asked for, so he was the king they deserved, and he was the king prior to David. Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan and David were the best of friends. And Saul and Jonathan are both killed. They're both dead. They had been killed in battle. The psalmist who had been anointed by Samuel the prophet is now King David, not just the anointed one, but the anointed one who is king. David the shepherd is not just the shepherd any longer. David the harpist is not just the harpist. He is not the victim. He is not the one sought by Saul. He is now sitting upon the throne of Israel. He is the king, a man after God's own heart. And only certain people have the right to sit at the king's table. We, we, we struggle with this in our culture today, I do. We live in a, I mean, it doesn't, it pay, we, only kingship we even think about is perhaps in what's happening in Great Britain and King Charles now, but even that pales in comparison of what was accepted and allowable during this era. Only certain people could sit with the king. And when I think of that, I think of a man named Mephibosheth. Now, some of you know the story of Mephibosheth. Some of you have never heard of Mephibosheth before, but Mephibosheth is a, an Old Testament character that kind of pops up and has a, an interesting backstory and, a, and an incredible story that's going on there. But there's a purpose and a reason for him in this story. When, when this man, Mephibosheth, was five years old, his father, Jonathan, uh, best friend of David, his grandfather, Saul, the king, when he was five years old, Jonathan and Saul were killed in a battle. And because of the, the way the Middle Eastern kingdoms were, were set up and how things took place, you, 
You kill the king, you kill the king's son, you better kill the king's heirs and get rid of all of them. And so he's five years old, probably wasn't thinking much about being king, but there was a great fear that the enemy, once they found out where he was and who he was, they would kill him as well. And so he had a nurse, he had a, a nanny, a nurse that took care of him, and this nurse picked him up and fled with him to the city of Gibeah. But in her haste to get him out of the city to a place of safety, she dropped him. And uh, we don't get a lot of details of how that happened or what took place, but she dropped him, and apparently when he landed on his feet, he broke both of his feet, and he was crippled at that point and from the remainder of his life. He walked with a very, if he walked, he walked with a limp. He just kind of dragged his feet along. I, you can kind of imagine that. He was carried to Gibeah and protected by Machir in the house that he owned for many years. He grew up there as a young man. And then eventually David becomes the king, as we know, and David is the king, and he had conquered all the enemies of Israel. It's a time of peace for the nation. And he remembered that his best friend Jonathan had a son. And it's recounted in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, it says this, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, as David remembered that Mephibosheth existed, and he called for him, and when the king calls for you, you really don't get an opt-out. So Mephibosheth makes his way, and he came to David, and he fell upon his face and paid homage, and David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered to David, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall be at my table always. From that moment on, for the remainder of Mephibosheth's life, he had a seat at the king's table. Not unlike his own sons, he could come to the table, he could sit, he could feast, he had a proper seat. It was reserved for him in his name, gifted to him by the one who had the power over him. And he gave him a seat at the table. I've often wondered as I read the story of Mephibosheth and David if he thought back to what he had written in Psalm 23, if all of that kind of over, overlapped, if that jogged his memory at all. For in Psalm 23, 23, he references the great table of the feast of the great king God himself, the sovereign one who has reserved a seat for him. An undeserved seat at a table. See, the shepherd becomes the host, and he is the host of this great feast. And then you'll continue on in Psalm 23, and you notice the sovereign is the one who anoints my head. So the, the shepherd is my host, and now the sovereign is the one who anoints my head. As it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We don't do a lot of oil anointing over people's heads today. We have done on occasion. But when you look at the original language here and the literal translation of the phrase, anoint my head with oil, actually means to make my head fat with oil. I can already hear you saying it now. Oh, I guess we're a bunch of fat heads. In a lot of ways you are. Me too. But that's the literal translation. It does seem to lose something in English. But the image of something being made fat was clear in the ancient world as a symbol of showing lavish provision upon another person. So the anointing of the anointing of the oil over the individual who gets the privilege of sitting at the table at the seat he doesn't deserve signifies that the person at the table isn't a latecomer who forgot to RSVP, 
It's not the person that shows up for the meal and has to be set over at the, uh, the kids' table, you know, the card table and the metal chairs in the other room. This is a seat at the table of the king with his name on it awaiting him, and he was waiting for him to arrive, the shepherd host sovereign publicly acknowledging David and all of his children, you and I who are children of his, as honored guests, not unlike Mephibosheth, who was told, you have a seat at the table. The ancient ritual is the pouring of oil, likely olive oil, over one's head, but it's not just olive oil, it's not cooking oil. I mean, it's oil mixed with perfume that would smooth the skin as it fell upon the skin and moisten one's hair. It will give a sweet fragrance. It is a mark of friendship, of acceptance, and of celebration. You anoint my head with oil, and I don't deserve that. My cup overflows. See, that again is another image of having more blessings than we deserve and more than we could ever even need or that we do need. God supplies for our needs. We struggle because we think our wants and our needs are the same thing. We struggle with that. And, and in a self-actualized society that elevates the individual to a point of it's all about you, even when we say it's not about me, it, we still sometimes fall into that trap. We are reminded here that it isn't about us, it's about God, and the fact that we have a seat at the table is a privilege, not a right. And that we have oil poured over our head is a gift, not an expectation. That we have a cup that's overflowing is not because we deserve all of this, but because of God's great goodness, we have more than we could ever need. The sovereign anoints my head. And the Savior prepares my home. You get to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The shepherd who is sovereign is the host who is holy. He is the same God. His rod and his staff bring comfort along the way of life, even in the most difficult of times. And some of you could, could echo what it means to live through difficult times. In those difficult valleys where shadows of death reside, as he stated, God is there. But on this journey that our shepherd leads, who, what follows us along the path, if you think about that, my shepherd leads me, but there's something following me. And as the shepherd leads, what follows is goodness and mercy upon that difficult path that often goes through valleys of shadows of death. The goodness and mercy is also called steadfast love. Steadfast love, a love that is never shifting, never changing, never modified, never defined based on our performance. Steadfast in that nothing can shift the foundation or lessen the quality or the quantity of the love that God has offered to us. God does not love you more if you behave better. God may be a proof of our behavior, and that is true, but his love is steadfast. It is full. Now, if you were to write your own autobiography, I guess that's why it's an autobiography. If you were to write an autobiography and you started recounting some of the things that happened in your life, so that you could share those with the next generation or maybe those that would be interested even now, you likely would, would find there were some chapters that were a little more difficult to write than others. You might discover there were some chapters that ended up longer than others because of the great difficulty that maybe they presented. 
There are moments in your own autobiography where these uh, statements from David in this psalm resonate with you because you go, I mean, I wasn't in that valley, but I had a valley, or I'm in one now. Challenging chapters that may seem to be longer than the easier ones, when the villain in your story seems more powerful than the hero of your story, when despair and grief seem to be the adjectives that mostly define you, if you are a child of God, I say take heart and listen to the psalmist, for there is hope in what he writes, and there is love, steadfast and everlasting. There is joy available as well. The enemy continues to attack, and we know what his goal is, steal, kill, and destroy. But he doesn't win. That's why we get to set up a feasting table on the battlefield, and the dinner is coming. In the midst of that battlefield, the enemy lays defeated. It is there that feasting table is placed, and there is a chair with your name on it waiting for you. And when you think of the goodness of our God, even when we cry out wondering why he seems like he doesn't listen or hear us, when, we, when our trust is broken in those that we trusted, that we maybe thought represented him, or those that were in our lives, and sometimes we just let the darkness overwhelm the light, and we have questions that seem unanswered. The promise is this, Christian, you have a shepherd, and you have a sovereign, and you have a savior. The Lord God is his name, and this great I am is, has been, and always will be, and as difficult as it may be to hear and understand this today, it is true. I guarantee that. I promise you that. I know it to be true. There are numerous others who have walked a very similar path. When Mike read from the catechism that was written hundreds of years ago, it seems like it could have been written last week because some of you resonate with that statement at such a deep level even now to realize that the human story isn't much different now as it was then, nor was it much different in the time of Job. When Job, through all of his pain, in chapter 19, verse 25, and all of the pressure and all of the things and all the opportunities he said, he had to say, my God doesn't love me, my God doesn't care, and he has abandoned me. He says, I know my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Sometimes you just have to read it again just to know it. Sometimes you just have to say it out loud so you can hear yourself say it. David knew this, David believed this, and David, who was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi, shares a messianic truth here in this Psalm, for he states that he shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now the house of the Lord in David's time was not a place that a man from Judah could even claim to be his home. Now if you're a Levite and a priest, well maybe so. And you may be saying, well he's thinking the big house, you know, a big, big house. You know, the one with lots and lots of room, that house where you can play football and all the other deep theological statements from Audio Adrenaline. But nonetheless, there's only a gener one generation, all of you 90s youth kids, you get it. The rest of you, sorry. There are hand motions too, so we'll get those later. But nonetheless... David knew this, and this messianic prophecy is given that he will dwell in the house of the Lord, a place for God's children, a place for God's family. David's statement clarifies the truth for him as he looks forward to the coming Messiah, and for us as we live with this part of our history, we look back at the one who has already come, who is coming again. Christ has come. He has shown the way, for he is the way. He is the way to the Father, and through him you can be saved. Now, I know here's this little phrase I keep using, and some of you, it kinda, you're catching it, and others of you are just not quite sure what I'm saying. I'll say, for those of you who are children of God and the rest of you, 
Some of you are children of God and some of you just go to church. Some of you are children of God and some of you just tune in on YouTube and watch. Some of you who tune in on YouTube are children of God, but not all of you. Some of you who are in the room, many of you are children of God, but not all of you. See, children of God is, is, is those of you, are, are, is the designated term for those who have surrendered your lives as individuals, right? I mean, it's a great idea if your granddad was a preacher, but God has no grandchildren, so it's an individual relationship. You as an individual have surrendered your life to Christ, confessed your sin, repented of your sin, turned to him, and have been born again. You have to be born again to be a child of God. And you get it. I mean, I get it. People always say, do you think, David, do you think Baptists are the only ones that go to heaven? And I said, I don't think all Baptists go to heaven. I think Christians go to heaven. I think those that have a relationship with the Father through Christ go to heaven. I think that not because it's a great idea. I think that because the word of God, which is inerrant and immutable, and that which we go to states it clearly throughout even in the Old Testament, looking forward to it. In the New Testament, clarifying it. And today, through the Holy Spirit, recognizing that the word states this to be true, that it is how God has designed this great rescue. Christ has come and shown the way, for Christ is the way. Through Jesus Christ, a place has been set for you at the Father's table. Through Jesus Christ, now, when I say that, let me just clarify. I'm talking about the real Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about this muddied version that is often sold in Western Christianity today that is somewhat Jesus. I'm not talking about the version that has be, become made in the image of white Europeans and looks like he's a pasty-faced white guy that floats around an inch off the ground. Looks like a great model for Renaissance paintings but doesn't look like the biblical Jesus at all. I'm not talking about this version of Christ that has, is just baptized paganism with a nice outfit on. I'm not talking about Buddy Jesus that was mocked in the movie Dogma, but only a joke because so many people want a Buddy Jesus. A homeboy. I've seen the shirts, you have too. The <laughs> Jesus is fully human and fully God, but many people want to de-deify Jesus to make him just their pal. And then the father is just that man upstairs. Hmm. And not that Jesus. Not the Jesus that has been hijacked by local, by cults in our, in our country and other places around the world. I'm talking about the Jesus, not the one that, that's simply a man who at some point realized he was the son of God and therefore it became subject matter for fictional movies and books. No, I'm talking about the Christ who has been, is, and always will be the eternal Son of God, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, Messiah, Christ, King, Lord, way, truth, life, that Jesus. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's good to say, yeah, amen, I get it, but it's so obvious that the other Jesuses that we've created in our own image sometimes mess up the biblical vision and version of who he truly is. So amen it, but really amen it. As in, let's go to the word. See, this Jesus, this real, biblically revealed, resurrected Christ has come to give you life full and abundant Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he paid the penalty for the sins of the world, but let it just sink in a little more. He paid the penalty for the sins of you. That which you have thought, said, and done outside of the will of God, the sins of your heart for your sins, the ones you were born with, the depravity that defines you, 
Those sins, the ones you practice over and over again, and you've perfected them. Those sins. The sins that keep you from knowing God personally as Father have been paid for in full by the Son. The sins that keep you from having a seat at the table have been paid for. And if you would but repent of those sins, believe with your entirety that Jesus is the Son, raised from the dead, surrender your life to him, the scripture says you will be saved. You ever thought you had a reservation somewhere only to discover you didn't click the last button online? Or you didn't pay the deposit? Or they messed up or something and your name's not on the list and they'll squeeze you in maybe if there's room? Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms in John 14. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house are many rooms and I will go and prepare a place for you and I will come back and bring you there when it's time. At my Father's table are many seats and I'm going to prepare a seat for you, and when it is ready, I will come and get you. The word says rooms, the word says father's house. David said, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I like what Charles Spurgeon said in one of his messages regarding this. He said, a servant abideth not in the house forever, but a son abideth ever. Oh, audience today, may you become part of the congregation. Lost, may you be saved. The despairing, may you find hope. Creation of God, I pray you become a child of God. And I pray it happens today. You have been invited into this family and Christ has prepared the way if you would but receive, repent and receive, you could be redeemed. And you can abide in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth that it gives us, Lord, for the fact that it's not just a true story, but it is truth. I thank you, Father, for the word who is Jesus. I thank you, Father, for making the way, preparing the way, and providing the way through Jesus Christ. And for the ones that are in earshot of me this morning and the ones that are in the room, those that are online who are not yet your children, may today be the day of salvation for them. May Psalm 23 no longer be just thought of as a cute little passage we read at funerals, though we will, because it brings comfort. But may it be remembered as a song of life and a song of joy. I pray this in Jesus' name.